0: All right, from one uh, important comorbidity to the next, uh, our next uh, talk is on cerebrovascular disease and HIV, and uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Heidi Crane, who's a professor of medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Crane.
1: First, I want to say thank you so much for this opportunity. I love talking about this topic. I think it's really important, so I am happy to be here. Uh, I have no relevant financial disclosures. I do have one. Uh, I am on one grant related to that, from Vive that is not related to cardiovascular disease. Um, Today, I think some of the take-home points I want to make sure we think about as, as this talk is coming to an end is, is thinking about the importance of cardiovascular disease among people living with HIV. I want to make sure that I'm clear about the importance or the impact of types of MI, so we're going to talk about that a little bit, and emphasize the changing um, cardiovascular disease epidemiology among people with HIV. This is a little roadmap of where we are and where we're going. I think the the first thing I want to talk about is a little bit about why we care so much about cardiovascular disease and HIV, and I actually think there's a number of reasons. I think first and foremost, and I'll talk about this more in just a minute, is that the risk of cardiovascular disease among people living with HIV is quite a bit higher than those without, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those reasons. I think the impact is substantial in terms of both the morbidity and the mortality, And and it's potentially likely to continue to increase as we have an aging population of people living with HIV. I also want to talk a little bit about traditional risk factors. Um, I think they have an important role in cardiovascular disease and HIV, but I don't want to lose sight that that's not all that matters in these patients in terms of their cardiovascular risk. Um, And I think the other reason that cardiovascular disease and HIV is so incredibly important is I think it is a really useful model. It teaches us both about the roles of inflammation and HIV in general, and I think it also can educate us about cardiovascular disease in the general population. I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, Much of the data I present is... Is US based, but I did want to include this because I think it's important to not lose track of the fact that this is not just a problem in the United States. This is a, the top half shows um, risk of cardiovascular disease, and the bottom half is an impact um, of cardiovascular disease, with darker red indicating worse outcomes. Um, and again, I think that in particular in the low and middle income countries, as we're seeing uh, more and more scale up of antiretroviral therapy, some of these colors are actually going to be getting more red, not less. The circling back to my list of why it's important, the first thing I had mentioned was that the risk is higher in those with HIV versus those HIV-uninfected, and that's been known from a number of studies for a number of years. Um, Later on in this talk, I'm going to make what I hope is a compelling argument that many of these studies actually underestimate the difference in risk among those with and without HIV, and so I think that that each of these risk ratios, or most of them, are actually a, a pretty substantial underestimate of the risk of the difference between those with and without HIV, and I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, This is some nice data from the CDC that's really focused on the mortality from cardiovascular disease. The green is the general population, and as you can see, it's nicely dropping over time. The blue is another very high-risk population. Inflammation is not just limited to those with HIV. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other sort of inflammation-based comorbidities have been also known for a long time to have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and MIs. And What you can see in the um, blue, which is an inflammatory population with RA and those sorts of comorbidities is also a nice decline in cardiovascular disease mortality over time. In contrast, red is the cardiovascular disease mortality rates from the CDC data among people living with HIV. What you can see here is it's going dramatically in the wrong direction over time. I think think that that data highlights a couple of points. I think it highlights both the, the high rates and increased risk among our population. I think it also makes a nice statement about with better and earlier ART, People are dying less of other comorbidities, and, that's, and we're seeing that here, the dying less of opportunistic infections, and that's allowing them, if you will, the opportunity to die with cardiovascular disease. This is um, some data from Kaiser, and again, I'm going to make a really strong argument that they are underestimate. I hope that you consider a really strong argument that they are underestimating the risk, but this is a comparison of rate ratios for those with and without HIV over time, and I think it's, it was the first compelling data that as we do a better job of getting our patients on ART earlier that we're going to see a decline in, in some of these impacts. I think many of us who work at, at Ryan White Clinics and things don't have the same population as Kaiser. These are, these are very employed and, and I think look very different than what we're seeing in our clinic, and I think they underestimate these risk differences. But again, I think that the, the trend, if you will, over time is kind of compelling and exciting. Um, Here I show a a model, if you will, that we can think of as a way of thinking about cardiovascular disease risk among people living with HIV. This is actually from a study by Steve Deeks and it's a continuum of um, chronic of chronic comorbidities models, so not just specifically focused on cardiovascular disease. And I think what you can see here is both that there's nuance, there's a lot of different factors involved, but I think there's also something optimistic about this approach or frame for cardiovascular disease, and that there's also a lot of different places where there's the potential to intervene and therefore improve outcomes. I now want to talk just for a minute about types of MIs to make sure we're all having the same discussion and using the same vocabulary. The universal MI definition um, has been around a number of years, and it's a way of categorizing MIs. So this is not an HIV-specific frame, but the general population in the real world, if you will. Um, Type 1 MIs are the classic atheroembolic MIs. I think it's what most of us think of when we talk about um, MIs. Uh, Type 2 MIs are those that are... That are caused by oxygen supply-demand mismatch, and these think of these as the MIs you get when you're septic and your blood pressure's 80 over whatever. Um, they're they're mismatch MIs, and they don't necessarily indicate something about athero about atherosclerosis or underlying uh, disease. So here's my first question. What percentage of MIs among people with HIV are actually type 2? We know from the general population that type 2 MIs are pretty rare. They're typically well under 10% in the general population. Where do we think that falls for patients with HIV? Less than 1%, 1 to 10, 10 to 40, 40 to 60, greater than 60, or pi? Apparently, we were done with the wicked music. So 10 to 40 was the best guess. It's actually 40 to 60. So, there's there's the studies are sort of in the 45, 46, 50%. It depends a little on your definitions. Type 2 MIs. Um, I think the best studies to date are those that focused on first MIs. There's an argument in the literature about. Follow-up MIs, and you can imagine that arrhythmias and other types of follow-up MIs are more common in people who've already had a type 1 MI, so the numbers get really murky depending upon how you define it. But I think clean definitions that focus on a patient's first MI, um, within, in the Scenics data, it was 46% of the, of the MIs among people living with HIV from eight sites across the U.S., What's the most common cause of type 2 MIs? Do we think it's due to sepsis, cocaine-induced vasospasm, GI bleed, or other things? Good. Good. So, sepsis is exactly right, and in just a minute, I'll show you some data that breaks down the causes of type 2 MIs. So, first I wanted to describe how MIs have been addressed in Scenics, and there's a reason for this. There's a wealth of literature in the general population that have demonstrated that using diagnosis data to try and understand MIs is... um, uh, fraught. There is, for example, for those of us who still use or use ICD-9 or even in the ICD-10, there is no such thing as, for example, a code for sepsis-induced MI. It just doesn't exist. Therefore, it's not surprising that things like sepsis-induced MI are poorly captured when you use diagnosis data. Even even without that, among type one MIs, there's also a, a wealth of reasons of why diagnosis data, for example doesn't do a great job of capturing some of these events... So within, within the SCENIX cohort, we developed an ascertainment and adjudication protocol where we used multiple types of information, not just the diagnosis data, but cardiac enzymes, cardiac um, patients who'd underwent a cabbage or other procedures, et cetera. So we used multiple types of data and then created case, uh, case packets that were then adjudicated by uh, two cardiologists to not only adjudicate whether or not an MI had occurred, but whether it was a type 1 or type 2, and if it was a type 2, what caused it. And I think that this was a really useful exercise, both in terms of understanding how common type one and type two were among people with HIV, because there wasn't data on that at that point, as well as understanding the 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 types, uh, uh, the causes of the type two MIS. Now, I don't want to get all the way into the weeds, but, there's a, but there is a couple of things on this slide I want to point out. And the first one is, with these adjudicated MIs, where we knew the outcome because they had been reviewed by two cardiologists and determined to, in fact, have had an MI, approximately half of them, or as you can see, 166, did not have an MI diagnosis. So they were picked up from the cardiac because they had elevated cardiac enzymes or other reasons. So using this highlights exactly how poor using diagnosis data alone can be in terms of identifying MIs. Now, if you, if, if you recall back to the earlier slides, I made an argument that um, Many of these studies underestimate the impact of HIV versus non-HIV when they used, many of them were based on diagnosis data. Well, diagnosis data is kind of cruddy for everybody, so that would argue that the difference wouldn't be that large. What we found was that it was particularly cruddy for type 2 MIs, and as I just made the point, type 2 MIs are four to five times more likely, or sorry, or 40 to 50% of events compared to less than 10% among the general population. Therefore, the underestimate of, of, uh, of MIs among people with HIV when you're doing these comparisons would be substantial. So focusing on type 1 MI, again, and these are using the adjudicated events. Um, what you can see in the left column is that traditional cardiovascular risk factors are, are key in these adjusted models as, as um, associated with the type 1 events. So um, patients who have HIV who have a type 1 MI are much more likely to be getting treated prior to their MI for hypertension, dyslipidemia, they were more likely to smoke, they had crudier kidneys, they were more likely to have diabetes I think these are all things we would have expected to see understanding what we know about type 1 MIs. Now if you look at the second column those are those are I think a little more interesting or a little more a little more interesting. What you can see is that also, in addition to traditional risk factors, viremia, this used time-updated HIV RNA levels, but we also did similar analysis using cumulative viral load and other ways of defining viremia, are also associated with type 1 MIs. Similarly, lower the CD4 cell count, the higher the risk of type 1 MI. So I think this just reminds us and links back to the earlier talk we saw about inflammation and other factors, that this isn't just traditional risk factors that are driving these type 1 MIs. Now, I mentioned I was going to get back to the type 2. This is the breakdown of the causes of type 2 MIs among the eight sites in Scenics across the US. And what you can see is approximately a third of all events were related to sepsis. So you all were exactly right when you answered that question earlier. And another 14% are related to cocaine-induced vasospasm. And I, I just want to highlight that when I talk about drug use in this kind of model, this isn't just somebody who uses cocaine. This is somebody who used cocaine at 8 this morning and showed up in the ER at 9 a.m. with chest pain. So it's not just having a history of use or using in general, it's I was using this morning and then my chest pain started 30 minutes later. What? An argument has been made that we don't really have to care about the type 1 and type 2 MIs, and, and the, the, the sort of premise of the argument is that people who are having a type 2 MI are people who were going to have an MI anyway. The sepsis is just what pushed them over the edge and is why they had it today. They were people who were heading down that track and going to get there. It just the, the event, if you will, just determined a little bit the factor. This is, a, this is some data that compares those with type 1 and type 2 MI, and I would argue that this data is very supportive that that is not the case. So patients with type 1 and type 2 MIs look very different. Those with type 2 MIs are younger than those with type 1 MIs, and they, ha- they are sicker in terms of their HIV disease status, in terms of their, H- their CD4 and their viral load. And when we focus on the traditional cardiovascular risk factors, what you can see here is that traditional cardiovascular risk factors like lipid levels have much stronger associations with the type 1 MI than the type 2 MI. And that's despite the fact that a much larger percentage of these people were already on statins; they still had much worse lipids for those that went on to develop type 1 than type 2 MI. If you look at the bottom row of this slide, this is a that's uh, their pre-MI cardiovascular risk score. This happens to be Framingham, but we could have done it with ASCVD or or other scores as well. And there's a 2% difference in um, cardiovascular risk score. And that doesn't sound like very much, but for those of you who think a lot about cardiovascular risk score, uh, cardiovascular risk score a 2% mean difference in two groups is actually a pretty substantial impact, uh, pretty substantial difference. So I would make the argument that the, that the premise that type 2 MIs aren't really that different, that they were just, they had it now because this is when their sepsis or pneumonia or whatever occurred, is, is not valid, that these are in fact very different people having very different events for very different reasons. Um This is some nice data I think that helps get sort of dig into the age differences a little bit better. The first two columns show the risk. Um, of type 1 and type 2 MI by age category. And the first thing to point out is that, in fact, our type 1 MIs go all the way down. They're a lot less common among our extremely young patients, but they happen all the way down in in terms of age. I think the second thing to point out is um, in both of those columns, you can see that they increase over time, uh, increase with age. So the older the patient is, the higher their risk is for a type 1 MI. The older the patient is, the higher their risk is for a type 2 MI. And if you now look at the third column, that I think gives you an indication of among a patient with an age, what are they more likely to have? So among our very young patients, there's something like 10 times more likely to be having a type 2 than a type 1 MI. As our patients get a little older, these sort of balance out. In the middle, they're essentially the equivalent. And as they get much older, you start having a higher risk of type 1 than type 2. And I show this not because this is, um, this is cardiovascular disease mortality, but it's mortality in general after MI. And I just want to emphasize, again, how important an outcome this is, that these patients, there are consequences and ongoing, ongoing consequences after their events. So I thought I'd talk for a minute about increased risk. And I don't want to dig into the weeds of this one either. Um, but In particular, I don't want to dig into it because we've heard some of this in the inflammation talk earlier today, and in part because I'm not a basic scientist and I'd hate to say something that wasn't totally true, but I think all of us looking at this um, can, can understand that this is in fact really complicated. There is a lot going on that increases these risks, and I'll get back to that in just a second. I think I will skip this because it was described in the earlier talk. Um, But I did want to talk about, there's sort of this emphasis, well, if we dealt with the traditional risk factors, that's really what's driving these MI rates, right? There was an editorial a few years ago that talked about, well, it's not that these patients are so much different, it's that um, their traditional risk factors are different, right? And we all know we have very high rates of smoking in our population, so maybe it's just we have high rates of these traditional risk factors. I thought this was a really nice study that demonstrated it's not just the traditional risk factors. What they did was they stratified, group, they stratified patients by their number of risk factors and compared those with HIV um, without and demonstrated that in groups stratified and who had the same number, for example, who had two major risk factors, the risk of MI was much higher in those with HIV, even in the stratified groups. And while, because I only get... a. 30 minute talk not a day and a half talk I don't spend a lot of time talking about antiretroviral therapy and MI's I do want to highlight this particular study and there's a reason and that is on every model on every slide on every discussion we have we have in every paper there's always this reference to the impact of antiretroviral therapy on MI risk and we spend a lot of time worrying about if the abacavir that they've been on for 4 years and now he's at high risk do we stop it do we not I don't know and and so And I think that's really important, and I think it's really, really interesting and really, really confusing. But I I don't want to lose the take-home that this, this study, for example, SMART, demonstrated how incredibly important it is to have the patients on ART. Regardless of whether you can get them on a completely metabolically happy regimen or not, just in general, having them on ART is a tremendous benefit in terms of, I would say in terms of many, many things, but because the topic right now is cardiovascular disease, I will say in terms of their cardiovascular disease. So uh, although I focus a lot on MIs, I think we don't want to lose sight that that's one of many cardiovascular um, complications that our patients are at increased risk for. There have been several studies. Um, This is one by Dr. Chow and colleagues demonstrating an increased risk of stroke among patients with HIV. This is um, data, again, from Scenics, but that looked at what that meant or what those stroke types were. And what you can see is about 3 quarters of them were ischemic, 12% were hemorrhagic. And I think the thing that's most interesting, again, this used an adjudication approach similar to the MIs, The benefit of that is we really get to know things about the events. We know who used cocaine that morning because there's a review of the primary data by the neurologists. We know who had their stroke in the setting of having toxo. They were hospitalized for toxo or something else. And what you can see here is that um, 19% 19% of them had current illicit drug use, and again, as I emphasized before, that doesn't just mean they're illicit drug users, that means they used crystal this morning and then showed up two hours later in the ER, and 20% of them had their stroke in the setting of an infection, toxo or, Zost- or you know, encephalitis, meningitis, et cetera, et cetera, many different kinds, and just like with the type 2 MIs, the types of infections are all over the map, but the fact that infection is one in five of these events, I think is sort of interesting and relevant. This is some data comparing those who had an ischemic stroke due to these infections and those who did not. And the reason, the reason I show this is I think there's an argument parallel to that made earlier about the type 1 and the type 2 MI, that those who are having these ischemic strokes secondary to or associated with illicit drug, et cetera, don't necessarily have the same underlying um, Metabolic baseline and the re- similar to the type two ar- type two MI argument, and I think that's supported by the fact that these patients are much younger and they look different than those that had an ischemic stroke without. I think there's the data is a lot less clear on the strokes than they are on the type one and type two MI, but I think it looks like it's heading in that direction. And I think what you can see with this data is again that traditional risk factors, age, diabetes, hypertension, etc., are really important in these ischemic strokes among our patients with HIV, Um, and much like with the type 1 MIs, we also see that HIV-specific factors such as CD4 count are important in terms of risk of ischemic stroke among our patients. What I think was interesting is when we parse these ischemic strokes by those with and without these predisposing factors, such as um, infection and illicit drug use, the association for traditional risk factors is much stronger in those without the predisposing um, infection or illicit drug use, and the association with hepatitis C is no longer there. That was being driven by those who had used their meth this morning. Oops, and that slide isn't loading anymore, although it did this morning. What you could see if you had a different vision of this, um, is that not only strokes, but we focus on, uh, there's a number of other outcomes that occur, I think, at higher rates. Now it's just doing its own thing. Um, That occur at higher rates among our patients, and thromboembolism is another example. Our patients are at increased risk for DVTs and PEs, and although you cannot tell, what you can see in the bottom circle is that half of our VTEs among patients with HIV are DVTs, and, and much like... And now it just showed up. Okay, that was interesting. Um, now you can see that half of our, stroke, uh, half of our VTEs are in fact DVTs. Um, but I think, again, the interesting thing here is the very high rate of predisposing um, conditions. I gave just a few examples here, and these aren't mutually exclusive, so patients can have more than one. But, but when you dig into the VTE data among our patients, they have very high rates of malignancy, hospitalizations, acute infections, etc., So I think there's still a lot to be learned here. I think that the most important thing that we don't know is what do we do, right? And so I think in this talk and every talk, somebody will absolutely say smoking cessation, and I could not agree more. Um, I do think we, of course, always have to deal with the traditional risk factors, and I think they have the potential to have a real meaningful impact. I think... um, I, I do want to dig into a couple of these just a little bit more, and I think one of them I you sort of hear lots of different opinions about is the risk scores. Maybe they underestimate too much. We shouldn't use them. We do. We don't. I don't know. So I wanted to talk about that for just a minute. There's a number of them. I give three examples here. One's a Framingham, DAD. There's a couple versions of the DAD, but that was a risk score specifically developed for patients with HIV. Um, and ASCVD is probably the one that most of us use most of the time. Um, these were all. Other than DAD, were developed to be predictors in the general population, and I think questions remain how well they work in HIV. Differences in populations have a big impact in risk scores. Um, it's not clear whether these predict type 1 or type 2. Do they do all MIs? We don't know. Um, and should there be an HIV specific risk calculator? We talked so much earlier today about inflammation, immunologic parameters. Should we have a uh, risk score that includes some of those? <clears throat> Excuse me. So here's some data comparing um, a few of the risk scores again using the Cenex MI data as the outcome, um, and. And you would expect some variations in risk score. And the reason for that is risk scores were developed slightly different ways. Some of them were looking at just were used based to develop, predict MI. Some of them were developed to predict any cardiovascular outcome. There are differences in how they were developed. So small differences across the risk scores are not surprising. In addition, there were differences in how they were developed in terms of populations, European populations, US populations, more global populations, et cetera. Again, so we expect to see some differences. But I think there's a couple of take-home points. And I think that the DAD score is really complicated to to calculate in your in your clinic, right? So what we want is a risk score we can do in in the clinic. DAD adds a couple of HIV specific variables, but it doesn't actually help us, at least based on U.S. data. Um, it doesn't improve our discrimination, and so there's really no benefit to using a more complicated risk score that people aren't familiar with that you can't just pull up nicely on the on the tablet on your um, computer in your visit. Um, and go from there. I I do think there is a question of, will we get better at this? Should there be an HIV-specific risk score? We've tried to calculate one, and I haven't been excited that it did so much better than ASCVD. In fact, I was a little sad. But I, I think it's still an open question, and I think that there may still be the potential for that, but I don't think we're there yet. I do think this data demonstrates that the ASCVD performed as well or better than the others in terms of all MIs and type 1 MIs and did better for the type 2. So I think there's an argument to be made for using ASCVD particularly above DAD but probably above the others as well. And I think there's room for improvement. I think there's a lot of room for improvement, but I also think, at least in my clinic, it is really compelling, I think, to calculate an ASCVD risk score and then have the patient tell me, what do you think will happen to this if you stop smoking? They always underestimate the impact, and then we calculate it together. And even if there is an underestimation using ASCVD risk score, I think the discussion can be incredibly compelling and motivating in terms of trying to motivate patients to quit smoking or make whatever, whatever change I am currently nagging about. Oops, now it's not gonna move at all. Oh, there we go. Um, and this is some data that not surprisingly shows, as always, the scores work better among men than women and they work better among white than black. Did I, If I didn't mention it before, there's still definitely room for improvement. Yes. Now it's working again. So, you know, I'm gonna run out of time, so just for a second talking about future directions, I, I give this talk because I'm really excited about this area, but I am really excited, I think, about what we will probably learn in the next couple of years. I think there's a lot of work being done by, by smarter people than me, focused on inflammation, imaging, and other areas. I think in the general population, in the real world, there have been a lot of really exciting advances. Um, in terms of treatments, I, I think, um, the the fact that semaglutide is now gonna be oral as soon as we can get it paid for for our patients, I'm really excited about that one. I think there's there's real potential for improving how we treat some of these traditional risk factors. Um, I wait with everyone else for the impact of some of these statin and other studies to see what they actually did. and, you know, I, t- I took this slide down. I have some data on integrase inhibitors and weight, but I think that the questions we can answer, I think Mike included some of those in his talk, I think the questions we can answer um, are much smaller than the list of questions I still want answers to, right? So we have we have data that shows Tarvey is similarly having this big bump in mean weight gain, similar to dolutegravir, but I think... Uh, Mike showed the the generalized additive model, the plot that showed that the dolutegravir weight gain actually is really harsh early and then plateaus. Are we going to see that same pattern in Vic We don't know yet, but I'm I'm kind of excited to find out. Um, I think this will be important. I think... um, I think we may be going to or are starting to see smaller increases in the risk of cardiovascular disease. I think getting patients on art earlier that the things we're doing are going to have an impact, but I also think some of the other reasons our patients have been dying are going to decrease dramatically, and cardiovascular disease is going to remain a really important area for us, um, uh, maybe one of the most important, although that could just be my bias, um, and I think that the questions we need to answer about MIs and type will not only be of use in terms of coming up with better strategies to treat our patients for and prevent MIs in our own patients, but I think they will be helpful in terms of understanding, uh, understanding HIV inflammation and some bigger picture questions. This was clearly not a comprehensive review of studies. Um, Clearly I like data, so there was as much as they'd let me keep put in one talk. But I think it should be clear that cardiovascular disease is an important outcome. It has substantial morbidity and mortality. Um, I think we do have to do the work of endpoint ascertainment and adjudication, that it's a complicated area, and the data we want, the data we can trust, is going to have to go through those steps to be valid. I think that I think it's important to keep in mind that type 2 MIs are a much larger proportion of our events among people with HIV than they are in the general population, and that has implications for how much benefit we get with just modifying traditional risk factors alone. I loved the substance use talk yesterday. I think there's a lot of different places that we need to intervene to have real outcomes here. Um, And I think the number of questions unanswered, at least in my mind, about inflammation are basically endless. (laughs) Um, this data, the data I presented came on behalf of uh, some of it was published, some of it was scenics. I list here I have many, many, many collaborators in scenics who are fabulous. Um, the slides, I got several slides from Matt Feinstein and a couple from Priscilla Shu and some others. The slides that were really creative and clever came from someone else. Any that had errors came from me. Um, and I am Uh, excited about sort of where we're going. I think that the next generation will be an incredible time. The next generation of, of younger, clever researchers, this is Mr. Incredible, he's my son, but also the next generation will really have a major impact. And I think this is a talk that should be given probably by someone else, but again in a year or two, because I think there's a lot we're about to learn and a lot of things that are changing. Any questions?
0: The hot seat. Great, so we already have a good stack of questions, but (laughs) uh, if you come to the uh, microphone, uh, you'll uh, take priority. So, uh, first question do you recommend taking a patient off a back of ear if they are at risk for (laughs) vascular disease or if they have known vascular disease? Cut right to the chase. Yeah, that is
1: right to the chase. I actually had slides in this, and it, it feels like we could have spent the whole talk talking about the your data. Um, I don't think we know the right answer, and so I think – so I really don't think we know the right answer. I think it impacts my practice more when I'm starting a regimen and, and trying to avoid it and people who are at incredibly high risk. I do occasionally change people predominantly when I'm changing them anyway, like that's one more thing we can consider, but I think as all of you know, this is a risk-benefit analysis and cardiovascular disease is not occurring in isolation and we have to figure out the rest of it and and none of these things are the thing that drives us.
0: And uh, maybe the same question about the other contemporary drug that has some of it. Darunavir. So Darunavir had a little bit of an association in the DAD study.
1: Yeah, again, I, I tend to use a lot more integrase inhibitors than I do darunavir or PIs in general. I think they're better tolerated, although I'm now much more worried about particularly my African American females and weight gain and consequences, and and, uh, and so I think it's it's complicated. I don't tend to use tons of darunavir, but it wasn't particularly just driven by the DAD study. I think I, I am using less PIs in general, but I'm kind of watching the I'm kind of watching the weight data and some of the integrase inhibitor studies pretty closely because they're not going to be as perfect as they seemed like they were a year or two ago.
0: All right, so this was probably triggered by one of your slides, but do you prefer rosuvastatin over torvastatin, and if so, why?
1: Um, I do, but I-, I think most of us live in the real world, and there's like formularies for half of the insurances and coverages of our patients that drive some of this. Um, I use a lot of resuvastatin. I use a lot of atorvastatin. I use resuvastatin as my first choice, We wrote a paper a zillion years ago that that compared the impact of resuvastatin, atorvastatin, and pravastatin across um, eight sites across the U.S. We looked at both their impact and then in terms of the lipid level lowering. And then among a couple of the sites, we also looked at how many quit and tried to look for CPK elevations and reasons that they were quitting that might be driving it. And resuvastatin was our winner, both in terms of impact on lipids, which I think is not surprising, given the general population impact data, as well as a slightly lower rate um, of um, consequences, myalgias, myopathy, you know, the sort of the bad part of rosuvastatin. Um, I also think there's some real benefit in terms of rosuvastatin. there's, there's data, again, from the general population that looked at different ways of giving it. Some of our patients don't tolerate it very, don't tolerate statins, and rosuvastatin has this really long half-life, and, and some of these patients who have previously not tolerated statins or other statins, you can sometimes at least do five milligrams a week or every other day, et cetera, and it has a meaningful impact, I think, in their, what we see is it has a meaningful impact in their lipids, and I don't really mess around with the others as once a week or every other drug, every other day, that sort of thing. It's just rosuvastatin that, that I think the data is best for that. And and, the, um, and it's a good way to get a little benefit in patients who have not tolerated statins in the past. And a lot of them will do that um, with no issues, no bump in CPK, no myopathies, and a meaningful impact on their lipids.
0: So um, any thoughts on the HUNT2 Norway study and the Korea all-cause mortality study that suggested Statin drugs may not be as good as claimed, and why does the reprieve study not look at all-cause mortality as an endpoint?
1: Well, there was like 17 different questions in there, but let me take a couple of them. Yeah. So I'm not part of Reprieve, so I can't make a strong argument for their choices. There's actually parts of that study that I really like and parts that if I, that if I ruled the world, which I clearly don't, I would have changed dramatically. Um, that said, I actually believe that one of their secondary outcomes is a mortality outcome, so... I, but again, I am not part of Reprieve. I just I'm just following with interest, and, and I, I don't really want to sort of comment on other studies that I haven't sort of got in front of me.
0: Great. That I'm not part of. So do do you do uh, excuse me? Do you see differences in angina presentations or, or or symptoms in HIV versus HIV negative persons?
1: Now that is a really good question that is a really interesting study that should be done. I don't think I know. I think I see a lot. I see an unfortunate number of people who are not um, vocal enough about their symptoms. I see, um, and and I don't know if I should be attributing that to diabetes or, you know, it's pretty well known in the general population that women can present differently than men, but I don't really know the answer if, in general, patients with HIV are less, um, are different in terms of their angina symptoms. I don't think there's data on that, okay. but there probably should be. Okay.
0: What can be done to better study cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease in women living with HIV?
1: More. <laughs> <laughs> that that summarizes it. I think there's, I, I, you know, like in, I think we will get there. I think that... Again, I reference Scenics because it's the one I know best. Um, I think I'm really intrigued by the now that we have, you know, over a thousand events, we have a number in women to start understanding these differences. And you know, the initial Scenics papers really just focused on MIS and those with in those with HIV and weren't able to parse some of these differences. And now that the sample size is much larger, I think we'll do a better job in the future. I think. Um, I think. It would be great if more of the studies parsed the type one and type two, because I think there, we see differences in the type one and type two causes, uh, sorry, in the type two causes among men than women, and we don't have that data from the VA and other cohorts. I think some of the other cohorts that do MI have a, have a really low percentage of women. VA is the classic example, obviously. So it'll be hard to get that information from them, but I'm, I'm sort of, I think we're on the cusp of of really getting a better sense of of what's going on. Okay. It's kind
0: of cool. So why are HIV patients more susceptible to sudden cardiac death?
1: Well, you've got all kinds of good questions. Um, so, so I actually think this is a really interesting area. In UCSF, we are not the leaders in that, but there's been some groups out of UCSF that have done some really interesting data, uh, interesting analyses in in Scenics and in others doing, trying to understand this. I think in my own population, I find sudden cardiac death really confusing, and, and in part it is beca- for several reasons. In part, I have a really hard time knowing among, for example, my illicit drug users who are found down at home. Was it a sudden cardiac death? Was it an overdose? They're found down, there's no autopsy, there's no information. I actually think one of the most intriguing things that San Francisco group is doing is they're doing a lot more autopsies to try and help us parse this. Because I think we don't really understand what's truly sudden cardiac death, like when we're looking at our patients in our clinic. I think there's a lot of blurry of the lines and, and in part Related to drug use.
0: Great. Are, are there any data on the use of PCSK9 agents in HIV uh, patients? I saw it on your yeah. list there.
1: Um, so I know of, there's, I don't know if ACTG has a study going. If somebody smarter than me happens to know that, I'm not, I'm not much of a trialist. I do know there's pilot data. Um, I'm hoping there will be more data. There's a metabolic comorbidities meeting. Uh, I'm hoping there will be more data at that next year, but I don't know that.
0: So if the ASCVD risk score underestimates risk in black men and women and overestimates risk in white women, should we use different risk score thresholds for a statin start?
1: Yeah. You know what? It, it would be great. It would be fabulous if the risk score, if it was that straightforward, right? If it was just, a, oh, and in black women, it underestimates it by 3%, add 3%. But it's not that straightforward. It's nuanced. It differs across the spectrum. So at different places in your risk score, in different places in your cardiovascular risk, it is wrong by different amounts. It is really complicated. So I don't, think we know, but I think there's a lot of work that should be done on the risk scores. But I do want to emphasize, even though I think there's a lot more work to be done, I think it's still pretty good. Pretty good isn't fabulous, but it's really, as I mentioned in the talk, I think it's really compelling when I have someone in front of me to say, you know, you quit smoking, your risk changes by blah, 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 and that's probably, you know, an underestimate. Your baseline risk is probably even higher than that. Is, a, is motivating, and we don't have something better. So I would absolutely keep using it. I just think there's a lot of work to be done on what we do next.
0: Okay, Just a few questions left here. Should we treat type 2 MIs, uh, MIs like type 1 MIs in terms of statins, aspirin? Well,
1: that's a really good question, too. Um, I don't think type 2 MIs are the same as type 1 MIs. I do, however, think we under treat cardiovascular risk factors in general. So I think we have, and and there's data, Greer Burkholder from UAB and others have published data on sort of how much statins and various things we give our patients. So if the fact that they had a type 2 MI is the motivator that gets them into clinic and lets you get a patient who needs a statin on a statin or lets you sort of bonk them over the head with um, smoking cessation options and etc., I am all in favor. I actually think probably at least in my clinic, the single thing I would be able to do that would impact my rate of type 2 MIs is more focused on the cocaine. If I had some way of getting rid of cocaine and crystal, that would have the biggest impact on the number of type 2 MIs I see in my clinic. But, you know, again, we're not in isolation. We do what we can with all of it.
0: What are your thoughts about the algorithm published in July of 2019 by the American Heart Association uh, using high-risk versus a low-risk approach to determine if statin should be started?
1: I'm fine with it. I think again, I think some of the barriers we have is our patients are on a bunch of different drugs and they have a bunch of different issues and social and housing and everything else. I am an advocate for treating cardiovascular metabolic risk factors aggressively, but I'm also cognizant that you know, this isn't, they don't see me in a, in a vacuum, right? So it's not the only thing going on and sort of prioritizing and, and getting, you know, we do, a, we do a lot of baby steps in my clinic. Um, and if we can deal with whatever it is we can deal with, whatever whatever needle we can move, that's sort of our approach. So I, I tend to see, it, and I have a metabolic HIV clinic. I see my patients really often, but I don't necessarily try and fix 72 things on a visit. So we work on smoking. We work on weight. We work on don't eat that second dinner. Let's go for a walk. I mean, we sort of pick our battles and just keep moving things in the right direction.
0: All right. uh, Final question. Uh, Why is the prevalence of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction so high in HIV positive patients?
1: Right. So that's also a great question. I um there, there was an there was, NHLBI had an RFA out that was specifically looking for cohort studies and things to focus on heart failure, and I was really excited about that. And I think a couple got funded or about to get funded, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I'm really excited both about some of the proposals we heard that went in for that, um, and I think the things we're going to learn. I think this goes in the category of things that I suspect Uh, we will know a lot more about in a couple of years, and and I really commend NHLBI's sort of emphasis on that with that RFA. I think it'll be important. I think there's many questions left to answer.
0: Great. Thank you for your time and talk.